the old reminder, you think it's warm in here, it's hotter in hell, you don't want to be there, here comes the fire and brimstone, baby. All right, Sun Valley is sending us off well, that we will be longing for that building. Um, so we're in the middle of series Adam started last week with mission and vision, and he's going to hit that again next week. We have kind of a one-off sermon uh, this morning that I'm going to hit uh, on, a, on a special topic. Um, and so you will kind of figure out that, what that is as we go here in, in just a minute. In the late 1800s, Edmund Spencer wrote a poem. And he didn't just write a poem. He wrote a very long poem. He didn't just write a very long poem. He wrote a very long poem for the queen, for Queen Elizabeth I. And based on this very long poem that he wrote for her, he was given a pension for life. Support him for the rest of his life. And it's possible that she didn't even read the poem. So how about that, aspiring English majors? Look at what's potentially there for you. Keep up your writing. You may be set for life. But this poem was special kind of in the light of uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, you know, the allegory of the Christian life. This very long poem about the seven deadly sins had a similar allegorical nature. And if you look at the slide here, you see kind of a, a, a cacophony of, of what's involved in the seven deadly sins. All these different characters that each sin would come in riding upon. And we'll kind of walk through those briefly. And you can... Look at that maybe just for 30 seconds and then shut that down if that's good. First was envy, the first of the seven deadly sins. And these seven deadly sins, Edmund Spencer didn't make them up. You can trace them back to at least reference in 400 A.D., if not even before that. But he described envy as a man with cankered teeth chewing on a poisonous toad and the poison, the venom dripping down his cheeks. Why such a grotesque picture? It's because of what envy does inside of us. As Solomon says in the Proverbs, envy rots the bones. Because envy weeps with those who rejoice and rejoices with those who weep. It says, whatever you have that's good, I don't want you to have it. I don't really care if I have it for me, but I just don't want you to have it. I don't want you to have blessing, and therefore it rots our bones to the core. Envy rides in on a ravenous wolf in the poem. Next is anger. Anger comes in on a fierce lion. The secular book Gift of Anger describes anger in this way. You become angry when you define reality as unacceptable, and you feel unable to easily correct it, tolerate it, or let it go. That's when anger boils up in you. Now, Christian counselor David Paulson points out that we, we all have an anger problem. Those who don't boil up and explode, even those who don't, we still struggle with anger in some way. All of us. And it's to finding what the root is. The root sin underneath the anger that must take place. Sloth. In Desiring God's book, uh, Killjoys, sloth is described as evenings without number, obliterated by television, 
evenings neither of entertainment nor of education, but of narcotized defense against time and duty. There's something that needs to be done, and we just appeal to comfort. We all in this, uh, or, or the sloth, the, the, the lazy one, has a passion for comfort. A passion for comfort. Rides in on a lazy donkey. The fourth of the uh, seven deadly sins, greed. How much is enough? One more dollar. After that, one more dollar. In the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments picture greed quite well in covetousness. Just wanting where God is not enough. God has made us to have things and to enjoy things, but we say, no, I want the things more than I want you, God. They're supposed to point us to God, but we want more and more. Need this device, need this trip, need this on and on. Greed is on a laden camel. Lust. John, Defi John Piper defines lust as that which dishonors its object and disregards God. I want you for my pleasure, and I don't care about you as a person. You are an object. It disregards God and his call to holiness in our lives. Rides on a bearded goat. Gluttony. It could be said that gluttony got us kicked out of the garden. Had Adam and Eve fasted from the fruit, maybe we would still be there. Or maybe we would have been kicked out for Cain's murder. We don't know. But gluttony got us kicked out of the garden. Now, is gluttony just overeating at times? Yes. But there's a tougher definition that hits the heart better. Jonathan Bowers describes gluttony as food worship. It could be the food that we eat, or it could be the food that we avoid in our attitude towards avoiding it. In our home, we see this. Levi and I have our special uh, sugar bomb peanut butter that uh, gets hidden in my office, and we sit in there and have the peanut butter and talk baseball. While the Girls, they have their cardboard, organic, whatever stuff, because they're better off avoiding what we've got. Now, they are better off, I give you that. But, but, the point is, we can go either way in this. By looking at what you eat, I don't eat, looking better, pride wells up in there. So gluttony is a dangerous one that we could preach on and on about. Gluttony rides on a filthy pig. So that's six. That's six of the deadly sins. What's the seventh? And, and I will say this. We're going to have a Sunday school class on, on all of these so that we can go into more depth on them uh, coming up next year. But the seventh deadly sin rides in not on an air, uh, one of the animals, but in a chariot pulled by the others because all the others serve the seventh. The seventh is no respecter of age, shows up for the three-year-old who says no because they know better than their parents. The six-year-old who wants affirmation that their picture they drew is better than their classmates. The youth that is sure that the other person is wrong because they can't see it my way. The corporate worker 
who makes sure to point out, yes, I didn't get the promotion, and that's because Miss So-and-so did just because she's a woman, so she got it and I didn't. Or the professor, the humorous story of starting off the class and saying, going on and on about this book and this paper and this book, ah, well, that's enough about me. Now you tell me what you liked about my books. It's the reason that many don't give their lives to Christ. Because we can look down at somebody else and say, well, if that's the way the Christian lives, I'm better. I don't need Christ. I'm good, good enough on my own, and I don't need your Savior. What is it? You can probably guess. But if you would stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Peter 5. Remember I said an hour and a half sermon. That's why that intro took so long. No, I'm kidding. The rest will be shorter. So don't worry. We will keep moving. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. You may be seated. And I invite you in your bulletin, you have an outline. Welcome to follow along with us there. Let me pray. Father, indeed, um, this topic is a hard one, a beneficial one, one that I would, I would humbly say you have uh, impressed upon me and humbled me in many ways. But this is not about me. This is about your word, your call to each of us. I pray that you would convict where needs conviction, encourage and build up where there needs to be uplifting. Would you do that through your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. So pride, pride is our topic. Pride is the seventh, the most significant of the deadly sins. Why should we care? Why should we care about this one? We know pride's bad. Okay, big deal. Look at the passage, 1 Peter 5, and see what God says about pride. What does God think of pride, this subtle sin? It says that God opposes, God opposes the proud. Let's unpack that a little bit. This sin that we tend to embrace and coddle and hide and feed in ourselves, but when we see it in someone else, it's the greatest turnoff. Oh, they're so arrogant and prideful. Proverbs 16 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination. Be assured he will not go unpunished. God opposes the proud. God hates pride. Oh, but, but God loves the sinner. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Okay, yeah, maybe. That's, that's, that's dodging the issue. God hates pride. And we need to feel the weight of that. We need to feel the weight. Think of, think of something that you hate. I'm talking about, well, I hate mayonnaise, I hate the Yankees. No, no, no. Someone who cheats you. 
someone who lies to you, someone who does you wrong, and that righteous anger boils up. But it's also mixed with unrighteous anger. God has no unrighteous anger. And he opposes, he hates pride. He stands against it. We could say, God has no true rivals, in a sense. He has opponents. Pride seeks to rise up against God and say, I'm a rival. I'm better than you. I know better than you. Pride of the seven sins stands against God. The other six seek to take us away from God. Pride is so much worse. It's been said it's like the child, the infant, crawls over. The father picks up the child, puts the child on his lap, and the child slaps the father in the face is what pride is like. But how do we end up nurturing our pride? I mean that we nurture, we hide it, we coddle it, we feed it, we nurture it. We do it by self-promotion, by building ourselves up. Making people see, oh, look, I did this, and I made this happen, and oh, look at me, in various ways. But we also do it by self-deprecation. Wait, no, isn't that being humble? I'm the worst. I'm so bad at this. Woe is me. What are we doing? Feed me. Affirm me. Tell me I'm good for this or that. Both of those are so self-focused. The old me monster, feed me, take care of my pride. We find ways to nurture our pride because it's about me. It's about me. So what's, what's our motivation to change? What's our motivation to change? Two passages help us. Mark 10, 35 through 45 is the story where James and John and the mother of Jesus, I mean, mother of James and John, come to Jesus and say, Hey, we're pretty special. Uh, will you give us special places beside you in heaven? Will you do that? And the other disciple is like, you idiots, you're jerks. We deserve it. Jesus says, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. Should not be this way. And he actually says, one of the wonderful things is, shall not be this way for you. The world does it this way. It shall not be this way for you. In a sense, a command and even, in a way, a foreshadowing for them. Because what happened with James and John? Down the road, James, in ultimate humility, was the first of the disciples to be martyred. John, exiled, kicked out. Isle of Patmos writes scripture about the, just the blessedness of being a true child of God. That, that shall not, that Jesus said, you shall not live like They embraced the humility. They embraced the lower class and lived it out. Also, Isaiah 66 says this, that God, the one, he says, the one to whom I look, he is humble and contrite in spirit. God is saying, his word says, he's looking for the humble to bless them. He's looking to pour out blessing on the one who's humble. True greatness, if you think about that, what, what does true greatness look like? It is the one who's humble. It's the one who's doing the simple things 
behind the scenes. The older sister patiently teaching the younger sister to read and doesn't care if mom and dad even know about it. The child making her mother a Mother's Day card, putting a dollar in there because it's all she has to give her. Years back, JFK uh, visited NASA, happened to pass somebody in the hall. What do you do? Who's a janitor? What do you do? I'm helping to put people on the moon. He embraced his job and the simplicity of it and poured himself in it and saw a great purpose in it. It's the one who doesn't need the lead position, happy to work in the back for the good of all. So that's our, we, we see why we should care about pride. God hates it, that we tend to end up nurturing our pride. We have motivation to change. God gives it in scripture. And then how can we change? First of all, we need to repent, but we need to repent by being specific. Not just a good old, God, forgive me for pride. Okay, oh, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. Be more specific. Hit it on where the pride is. I experienced that just, just this, a couple weeks ago um, at, at, at my day job. Uh, we're working on a security project to put out machines that will be secure in voting agencies so that nobody can hack them, all that good stuff. And I um, was working with another guy uh, on, the, on the project. And it's going well. And so my manager passes it on to somebody, and it goes up the chain and up the chain and up the chain. But my manager only mentioned me. Whoops. I'm liking the attention. But I also realized, wait, Pete, Pete did more than half of this. He did more than half of this. So it wasn't that hard for me to send off and say, well, you need to include Pete in this. He's done more probably even than me on this. But as I looked at the sin issue, <laughs> I wasn't so much, hey, Pete, I want you to have praise. I want my praise still. It's more if Pete sees this and his name wasn't in it, he's probably going to get on my case and call me, call me out on it. So was my motivation really for his good or just not to be called out? I, I, I need to confess that to God. And that's what I'm talking about, being specific, not just... God, they're, they're, forgive me my pride. God, get to the heart of where I was going, and I don't like it, and it's nasty. Yuck. But I think we probably all have similar. How do we clothe ourselves? How do we grow in humility? Let's, let's get practical in this. Hopefully, so, so we've got a, a realization that God hates the pride. And maybe, though, for the unbeliever, it might be, yeah, I, I, maybe I'm a little bit proud. I need a little bit of a change. I'll do a little bit of humble stuff. But that's just like putting a good fruit on a dead tree. If the unbeliever is here, you need Christ. You need to see that ultimate root of pride and say, Christ, save me. And that's your first step towards humility. Save me from being a rebel against you. For the believer, hopefully he's saying, yeah, I, I get it, and that's a bad sin, and I need to grow in it. I want to. Help me. I want to grow in humility. C.J. Mahaney, in his book On Humility, gives some very 
practical ways for us to grow in humility. First, he says, just plain focus on the cross. Go to the cross. And he borrows from a Spurgeon. Spurgeon preaches, and he points out that pride cannot live beneath the cross. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. In the Gospel of Mark, there are many things that the, 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 the atonement, the death of Christ is called in Scripture. One of them is a ransom. And a ransom was the word for buying back a slave, a prisoner of war, a condemned person. None of those very special people, really. A ransom was paid for them. And therefore it's saying, you, Jesus paid a ransom for you. He didn't do it because he said, oh, they're so nice and special and wonderful. They shouldn't go to hell. No, we were wretched. And he paid a ransom for you and for me. There is no place at the cross for our pride. It is more to see the infinite gift that he has given to us and to humble us. It was said many years back in the Soviet Union there was a meeting. And Stalin wasn't even there. But his name was mentioned. Somebody stood up and, and before long the whole group standing up, clapping, cheering, Stalin's not even there. Just keeps going on and on and on. They're thinking, well, I'm not going to be the first one to sit down. Finally, long into it, an older guy just falls back out of exhaustion because he gave in. His name was taken down, and he was arrested the next day. And it was said of that Stalin demands the praise. The Lord inspires our praise through the cross. And there is no place for pride at the cross. The next practical tip is that we should speak truth into our lives. How does that have to do with pride? Close to the time of the invasion and getting Saddam... He was there in a bunker or something and happened to ask somebody, what time is it? The answer was, whatever time you say it is, Mr. President. That type of feeding his ego, true, left to, led to his demise. But do we not do the same thing? Feed my ego through others or through voices in our head. Are we listening to ultimate truth? that speaks to us of who God is, who we are, we need to speak truth into our lives. And you know where that comes from. <laughs> the simple answer. So many sermons are going to drive us to the cross, to God's word. Where else should we go? And just to be even more specific on that, as far as feeding ourselves in God's word, should we not? If, you, if we consider the old line, what's the most important meal of the day? Breakfast, okay? There are many times where that nourishment we get at breakfast then is sustaining us and helping us later in the day. Think about how many times you fed yourself with something in God's word in the morning 
And it might not have been where you were saying, oh, I'm wrestling with grief. I'll go look for a verse for grief. Or I'm angry and I'll go look at it. You just read in God's word what you were in your plan, whatever, and you're reading it. And he feeds you, and then that shows up later in the day. Hmm, God's sovereignty. That he fed you with something that then you gave over to somebody else later in the day, and you fed them with that. God will speak to us through his word. He speaks truth to us about our humility, I mean, our need for humility, our aversion, and our need to be against pride. He will do that over and over through his word, because it's saying, I need you, and that's why I'm with you and spending time with you. We should use, in this day and age, especially our, di- our, our downtime. What do I mean there? You're sitting there for two or three minutes. I know what I do. Oh, I'll catch up on a couple emails, do this, do that, surf around for this or that. The devices can kill us so often. We have another Sunday school class called Spectacle, where we're going to dig into what the devices do. Some can be, I'm not saying they're all bad, by any means. They, devices, computers, technology, I work in technology. They have wonderful benefits in the right place and time. But it can also kill in so many ways. When those few moments, maybe it could have been reflecting on something that we learned that morning, that we should be praying for somebody else that we should be repenting of, and we kill ourselves, we deaden it with the devices. We should stop thinking about ourselves. Stop thinking about ourselves. Stop thinking about ourselves. So what comes to mind there, the next slide, the old, stop thinking about the pink elephant. Stop thinking about the pink elephant. And what do you do? Think about the pink elephant. Can't get it out of my head. I need to be humble. I need to stop thinking about myself. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Because the person that we're talking to, we get all in. We're focused on them. How can I help you? Tell me your story. How are you doing? You get invested in them. You just... Forget about yourself. Care and love them. Invest in them. Then you're thinking about yourself less. And you're not even saying, I'm being humble. I'm being No, you're loving them. And you're investing in that other person. The scripture passage directly tells us this. In verses 6 and 7. It says to cast our cares upon God. Peter says that we should cast our cares upon God. Upon God. Now, what, what does that have to do with humility? If I'm casting my care upon somebody else, I'm becoming more dependent. But our world says I need to have an image of independence, that I have it together. You might remember this commercial, those who are a little bit older, from, well, I guess is 20-plus years old, the old guy there, tennis player, Fill in the line. Image is everything. Andre Agassi would get, people would see him and they would say it to him multiple times a day. It was almost like he hated that he ever made that commercial because it became, uh, it became for me, I check in at a hotel, it's Timberlake. Oh, 
you're related to Justin? Oh, that, that's the first time you heard that. No. So I'm getting off track. But he was, he was then uh, hammered for life about the image is everything. So what's so bad about that? It's because that is portraying independence. I've got it together. Independence. Versus casting our cares upon God is saying, I am dependent on you. I need you. I need you. And then the blessing in this is God doesn't just leave it there and say, hey, cast your cares. But God gives grace. God looks for the humble. God gives grace. I want grace. I want to be under the fountain of grace. So therefore, I want, I need to be humble. How do we put ourselves under the mighty hand of God? As the passage says, be dependent Lean on God. Yeah, but I'm raising my children so that they'll be independent. Yes, that's absolutely true to some extent. You don't want that 30-year-old still at home uh, at midnight going for a bowl of cereal and all that. You know, you want them to be able to care for themselves and be independent in that sense. Yes, but you also want them to be more dependent than ever upon God. And to be humble in that way. So in our lives, we should be growing, yes, more and more dependent. The weak soil, the weak soil of humility allows for growth in God. The pride is a hard soil where nothing's going to take root. And we should be like Mephibosheth, who before David said, he's carried in because he's crippled. He said, who am I but a dead dog? That you would take notice of me. That is our posture before God. Two more. We should grow in how we handle criticism. We should grow in how we handle criticism. So that others can speak truth into our lives. And we don't become defensive. We don't say, yeah, but you're worse. And I didn't receive the criticism. And that is hard. That is hard. I asked a, a, a brother a couple months ago, give me, give me feedback, criticism on this or that. And so he gave me good truth, spoken in my life. But I was also realizing, why couldn't he come and give me that without me asking? Is there something in me that I need to be more humbled so that he would have thought, thought that he could have just come and said it? So there's all these things as far as the criticism, being willing and able to receive it. The flip of that, though, What about the criticizing others? We need to be more careful there. Yes, receive criticism. Offering the criticism, let's be careful. This little comic strip here with the uh, the peanuts. Um, Lucy's coming to Linus. Lucy, that quite pharisaical at times. The, The quote there is, I feel a criticism coming on. And she's going to let Linus have it for that. Gary Thomas says, We should never be less pleased with ourselves than when we feel most offended at others. Yes, we should, we could see something, you're doing this wrong. But when it starts to offend us at the core, and then we start to feel more self-righteous about it, you're so bad for that, and look how good I am, because I'm not like that. Oh, we must be careful there. We must be careful there. And the the phrase 
C.J. Mahaney uses, and it comes from Acts, that I love this phrase, and we use it in one of the baptisms of our children, is that we should find evidences of grace in others. Find evidences of grace. Paul does that throughout the scripture. In Corinthians, he goes off on the Corinthians. Issue, issue, issue. But he loves them. He finds evidences of grace. If he can do that there, if God can do that and find evidence of grace, then I sure can do that in others. And if we can't find an evidence of grace in another brother or sister, it's probably because of the log in our eye. And God warns us about that. He doesn't say, maybe, maybe you'll find something there, a little speck. He says, no, find the log. In other words, it is there. Before you go find the speck in somebody else's eye, find the log in your own eye. Get that, then you'll probably find the evidence of grace in your brother or sister. Close with this. When you picture an iceberg, an iceberg in a sense. So the iceberg that we see is 10%, 5%, whatever, above the surface, the immensity is below the surface. The true character of who you are, who I am, is beneath the surface. The pride, the humility, what's really there is underneath. We can hide the, the pride often with some little comments, make us sound humble. But what's really underneath there? Simple application for today. I mentioned the, the, what, what is greatness. What is greatness? Let's drive that home. So just later today, have a conversation over lunch with family, with friends, children, parents, whatever. Just talk about what is greatness. What is greatness? And may that drive us to a clearer and clearer picture of our need for humility. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, as C.S. Lewis said, it is as if at times we are an instrument tuned and ready to play, but we refuse to because we think we know things better than the master. We all, top to bottom, first to last in here, are struggling with pride. Some more than others. We all need the grace of humility. We all need to realize the depth and danger of pride because of the warning you give us in Scripture, but also the fountain of grace and the goodness and the joy and the blessing that awaits as we grow in humility. Lord Jesus, help us to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.